Welcome to the Progressive Practice Podcast, social performance practice at the core of the energy transition. This first season is funded by the Tentrans Research Project. Alison McCallum is a social scientist, trained as an anthropologist, and one of the most inspiring social performance practitioners I know. She has worked mainly in the extractive industry, but is starting to work more with renewables IPPs since a few years. Alison takes us through her early career experiences in social impact assessment, and then as consultant, trainer, and facilitator in the emerging field of social performance, helping companies build capacity to better engage with the social risks and opportunities associated with their business operations. She details the shifts and maturing of the industry and describes how she navigates the complexities of her work. Alison taps into the emotional aspects of community benefit and how they might be more beneficial if these human issues are truly brought to the fore. Hi Alison, welcome and thanks so much for chatting to us. Absolutely, nice to be here. So first I'd like to ask, where are you locked down and is it sunny there? <laughs> I'm locked down um, in Nootuk in Cape Town, um, actually in my bedroom. Um, and is it sunny? It was sunny earlier, but it's got increasingly chilly. So it's actually nice to be wrapped up inside. Yeah, yeah. So we have a few questions and I'm just going to dive right in. Mm-hmm, um, I'd like to briefly know about the history of your career and how you got into social performance. So um, I did a, to start, I did an undergrad in um, Bachelor of Social Science, having utterly no idea where that might take me. Um, I then ended up doing an honours in social anthropology. So already there, there was my fascination with how human beings behave and think and organise themselves. And having finished my honours in social anthropology, I did not know where to take it forward, but ended up hearing about a master's in philosophy and MPhil with the environmental and geographical science department. And that brought together people um, in an interdisciplinary, people from, very, from many different disciplines coming together who were tasked with the, um, the work of answering the question, how do we manage environmental and social resources in an interdisciplinary way? So that um, was from a qualifications perspective. That's where my journey started. But um, what was interesting is that when I graduated, I graduated at the same time as South Africa's impact assessment legislation was being promulgated. And so I was lurched, lurched literally, into the whole impact assessment field um, and specifically into social impact assessment. So that um, many years ago in the late 1990s was kind of the proxy for social performance. It was the social impact assessment field. Um, and so spending about five years trying my best as a very inexperienced um, new professional, trying my best to manage or help navigate social complexity on behalf of clients, communities, NGOs. Um, to be honest, I got quite tired of that field um, just because everything I'd hoped it would be didn't come to fruition. So I'd hoped that it would be so much more groundbreaking, so much more collaborative, so much more um committed to sound decision-making. But what I noticed was that it very quickly, um, once we started, once companies started hitting up against the difficult edge of the kind of compromises that are called for, that it very quickly became a tick box exercise. And so I think I resigned from my first job saying, I will never, ever, ever do an impact assessment again. Um, and promptly left that company. And although I did do one again, um, it was the last one I did um, when I was based in London. And that really, um, from there, I, I started working much more with companies 
that were already wrestling with what it meant to um, manage existing challenges, social challenges. Whereas with impact assessment work, you're always predicting what might happen. Whereas when you work with clients who've asked you in because their backs are, backs are up against the wall, they already know the heat of things gone wrong. And so um, I, I then became, I focused my work much, much more on helping companies essentially translate their corporate commitments into who they were socially and, and from a community perspective into what that really looks like on the ground. Um, and that included um, helping build the capacity of practitioners to translate corporate commitments around um, what was then called actually corporate social responsibility um, into workable, implementable actions on the ground. So kind of started in anthropology, moved into um, integrated environmental management, then went into the impact assessment field, from there to managing complexity on the ground at existing operations. And all of this in mining sector, oil and gas, infrastructure development. So those real uh, sectors that had a very, very big impact negatively and some and positively on local communities. Um, but yes, it wasn't known as social performance then. That only happened in, um, uh, in fact, I first heard the term working with Shell in London. Um, and that was in about um, kind of the early 2000s. But it was only a term that, that kind of, you know, which, around which traction was gained maybe in 2005, six, round about there. But yeah, so that's kind of like my, um, the short version of, of how I got into social performance. Um, yeah, so that, that's the story. Thank you. Wow. That was so much in one. <laughs> an introduction into little history lesson and actually an eye-opener to the emergence and the very, very young existence of, of the field of practice. Um, yeah, I'm glad we got this into our conversation at first because... The second question is building up on it and partially assuming, but also coming out of the experience of having worked with you now for probably three or four years in, in social performance, um, just assuming it's something obviously which is constantly evolving, but not necessarily all that new. But um, yet you are, and it, it, it is clear now why, but you are one of the uh, most experienced social performance trainers and facilitators of, of, of related processes in, in South Africa, maybe maybe in Africa, we, we might have a bit of this African um, ego play into that assumption on my behalf, but um, certainly the wisdom you hold um, in terms of what it takes to teach and to train and to learn in this space is, is enormous. Um, and we would like to invite you to just share with us a bit about the evolution of the professional field, if there's maybe some milestones or certain drivers of the past yeah, what, what now it turns out to be 14 or maybe 20 years or odd um, that you've experienced that could elude further for us and on, on what the, yeah, the field has undergone. Mm, 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 mm. So thanks for that question, Holla. Um, so just to re repeat what I said earlier is that um, this idea of social performance emerged initially from the social impact assessment field. So that, that's where it was born out of, at least in... Well, definitely in South Africa, and I saw the same pattern um, in when I was working um, in London in the early 2000s. Um, and what I noticed, or, and, and not just me noticing this, but um, what was happening was that, that at the time that um, 
So essentially what happened is that you would have a social impact assessment um, developed by an independent consultant and that the results of that impact assessment would be translated into a very detailed management plan, a social impact management plan that then had to be implemented on the ground by the company, um, who, by the project proponents. Okay, So it's one thing doing the impact assessment, it's another thing developing the plan, but it's the, 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 the weight of, of this responsibility ultimately falls on the practitioner working for the Anglo-Americans or the Shells to then implement this social impact management plan. And I think that um, as the social impact assessments got more detailed and we as consultants started learning about, you know, what had to go into these um, impact management plans, those plans in turn became more complex. And so we first started noticing where they were, where were the, where the gaps were in terms of what it took to actually implement the commitments that were um, um, included in these plans. Because up until then, um, somebody appointed to a social or community role, well, I can't say it wouldn't have been clear what they had to do, but definitely these management plans made it very clear what they had to do. And then very quickly, they would come up against um, their own, their own the, the, the edge and their own learning. Um, so, so that's where we first started seeing those gaps in capacity. Um, the other thing which um, also what we noticed was that notions of what was required by those practitioners was typically reduced either to engagement commitments or otherwise commitments related to CSI. But clearly, as these big projects, particularly the big complex projects, started having impact and effect, you know, both during construction phase and also during operational phase, um, it became clear, number one, that many of the practitioners employed to these roles, who typically came from you know, teaching backgrounds, NGO backgrounds. Um, sometimes it was the friendly, soon to retire general manager that was popped in that position. But that clearly people were not always sufficiently equipped to um, to manage the complexity on the ground. Okay, so that was the one thing which we started noticing. And that also the remit of responsibility went way beyond um just engagement and CSI. So already we could see like a, the, the boundaries that, we, that, that were being placed around social performance were already starting to kind of like creak and groan. So, so that's two things to mention. But then if I look back, what I started noticing was that um, in the early 2000s, it was enough for a company to say, these are our social and community commitments. Like this is what we stand for. And they would get a lot of kind of recognition for being forward thinking in their commitments. But it didn't take too long for um, stakeholders to start saying, okay, well, that's great, but where is the evidence of what you're doing? So um, stakeholders um, became increasingly vocal, and, and that um, tendency to become increasingly vocal is, is growing even to this day, to, to say, to hold companies to account on what they were or weren't doing. So they started, um, stakeholders almost started calling companies to account in terms of their commitments and what that really looked like on the ground. And then um, international fi financing um, um, institutions equally were starting to notice um, the risks. They're becoming increasingly aware of the risks linked to social complexity and social license to operate. Um, so they also started demanding performance from these companies. And that performance, the, 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 um, you could say the pressure to perform ultimately you know, sat at the feet of your social performance practitioners. Um, 
And then lastly, um, I think companies themselves were starting to feel the enormous cost of um, not getting it right. So there was just more and more data um, in terms of, to be honest, like real financial costs of not getting it right. And then together, all those three things started almost pushing, um, creating momentum around um, ensuring that people were better qualified to manage what was increasingly becoming recognized as one of the most difficult jobs to do, um, particularly in the extractive sector at the time, to be honest. So um, what I first noticed was there was quite a scramble to develop kind of guidance notes and toolkits and almost um, and the right procedures and the right policies to support good performance. But equally, that in itself is not enough that what you need to be doing is giving people the actual technical skills, um, the hard and the soft skills to navigate this complexity. So if your question is around, um, you know, what were the key milestones, it was almost a whole lot of things happening at the same time, but it was an accumulation of growing awareness among stakeholders and also amongst um, um, companies themselves and your international funding, uh, financing institutions. Um, and then also the heat of getting it wrong being felt very acutely on the ground, I guess all of which resulted in there suddenly being this massive need for um, capacity building, whether it was in the form of mentoring, kind of in-house training, um, you know, certified courses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so, yes, a lot of very positive um, uh, you know, movements with respect to professionalization, which doesn't mean to say that we've got there. We, we absolutely haven't. But um, yes, a whole lot of things mm. supporting that, you mm. could say. Yeah. And that is that is probably um, well, moving the, the viewpoint from, from what has happened to what might come next when you say it doesn't mean it's necessary that we have arrived as a field of practice. Um, Sitting with that experience, I wonder what what comes up for you when you do think or, or dream about the future. What are your hopes for the field in terms of further development, knowing that some of those really, really complex challenges, especially um, in our, our context here in South Africa or Africa, um, looking into the natural resource-based sectors, looking into extractives and, and, and renewable energy, um, so the energy transition, so there's been an enormous, a, a massive shift over the years. And when I say over the years, I'm meaning from kind of like the early 2000s to now. So over the course of 20 years, um, we absolutely social performance is taken a lot seriously than it ever was. Um, I mean, if I think about the most significant changes is that um, social performance as a function, as a discipline, um, is in, it, it's widely recognized. I mean, there's no top company these days, or even maybe, I hope, middle-sized company, um, that has high impact that would not recognize the importance of having social performance capacity in place. So that, that's an incredible, I mean, that's an amazing sign of maturing over the years. So that, that's good news. Um, the other good news is that social performance is, de is definitely no longer, particularly in the extractive sector, um, both oil and gas and mining, it's, it's no longer seen as focusing primarily on um, engagement and CSI or PR. I mean, that, that's long gone. That, that boats, um, that, that's no longer the case at all. So that, that's also very good news. Um, the other thing that I'm seeing is that social performance itself is becoming much more rigorous. And um, so, so, for example, for a long time, the way in which impacts or risks um, or even the engagement process was managed was incredibly ad hoc. 
and kind of lacking the same rigor that other departments would manage impacts or risks. So, and, and that didn't help because what it um, fueled was this idea that um, social performance practitioners weren't professional, that they kind of just did whatever came up when it came up. So, so that didn't help in the early days, um, the kind of doubts and um, misgivings around social performance practitioners, but that's changed dramatically over the years. And also our approaches to how we engage and to how we do SED or enterprise development, that equally has matured. So there's been an incredible maturing over the years. But as you all know, Holla, um, despite all that, if, there is, if, if, if a company finds itself in a hot spot, in a tight spot, it will always be the department that is um, uh, culled first. It's always where they will strip personnel. Um, and, and I think that's still, unfortunately, underpinned by this idea that, um, that anyone can do it. So although there's been an increase in professionalization of social performance over the years, there's still this lingering belief that anybody can engage, that anybody can do successful enterprise development or su successful community development interventions, um, and that um, it doesn't somehow need the same rigor and professionalization that the other disciplines require, um, which I always just find so, um, uh, it, it always just shocks me because I, for example, as an anthropologist would never in a million years profess to be able to take over the job of, um, of an engineer at a mine or a, um, you know, or take on the job of anyone in the environmental team. I wouldn't pretend ever to have the level of depth of understanding to manage their complexity. So um, it is unfortunately still kind of haunted in a way by this idea that anybody can do it. And unfortunately, you see the impacts of that on site um, when you don't have the right team in place. You see it in how companies engage where still to this day, um, you know, if you've got strong project management skills or if you're good with people, you're good to go, whereas that just isn't the case. Um, anyway, so, so I just wanted to say that there's been an incredible maturing, but equally there's still, the social performance team still lags behind um, the respect, I think, that other departments still get. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Which begs really the question, where is the the field of practice going next now and I wonder what your hopes and ideas are for the future of the field especially in the in the context of the energy transition um, do you do you think the practice needs to change further and if so um, in, in what way well I mean so one shift that absolutely has to happen and which which is happening in some companies but um the fewer <laughs> rather than many is this shift towards um treating social performance as what we call an all of asset responsibility and really what that means is that um one's quality of relationships with whoever your stakeholders are is no longer just the responsibility of your social performance team um that is the responsibility of every um, head of department throughout an operation, for example. Um, and that ultimately the quality of your, um, the strength of your social license to operate, as we call it, so the extent of your community support, that responsibility for that ultimately sits with your general manager. And that um, whilst the social performance team will have a specific set of responsibilities, what we're, what, what desperately, what is desperately needed is this um, movement away from a very siloed approach to 
managing community and social issues to it becoming an integrated um, responsibility across across the across the company. So that for me, and I know that's a bit different in the renewable sector where your teams are typically much smaller. Um, so so I know that 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 doesn't you can't necessarily cut and paste what is needed in the extractive sector to what is needed um, in the renewable sector, except to say that surely the renewable um, sector has the opportunity to bypass a lot of the mistakes made in the extractive sector. And one of the mistakes made was to silo responsibility for social and community issues to a specific department. Um, and I, I, so, so if you ask me the question, um, what do I think needs to change? So I suppose, um, if, if, so the question that I'm carrying in my mind are, um, you know, what are my hopes for, for the social performance field um, in the context of, of, of renewable energy and energy transitions? So the first, my first hope is that there's a very deliberate learning from the sectors that have come before, before you, before us, us being the renewable energy sector. Because as I said to you earlier, there have been some incredibly important, I mean, the maturing process has been agonizing in many respects, and there's absolutely no reason why the renewable sector can't um, springboard from where the extractive sector has got to. So what are the, some of the big mistakes that don't have to be learned again? Um, and the immediate ones that come to mind is, um, as I said earlier, the, the mistakes made around not treating social performance as a professional discipline, um, mistakes around um, thinking that anybody can engage with the stakeholder just, just, just as long as you've got a beating heart, you know, um, mistakes around um, thinking that anybody can do community development when in fact it is a distinct um, discipline all on its own. So, so to say that in a nutshell, what I hope is that the renewable energy sector doesn't make the same mistake. And I think the most significant mistake made in the extractive sector was that anybody could do social performance. So that's, that's one thing which I desperately hope the renew, renewable energy sector is not a mistake they have to make because its consequences will be felt on the ground by host communities. And that um, social performance is adequately resourced in order to enable teams to manage social complexity. Um, you know, one thing we know is that in terms of human relationships, it's never done. You never get to tick anything off. You constantly have to stay alert and responsive and resilient to a context that can quite literally change by the day and where your ability to navigate that complexity is dependent on your strength of relationship with local communities. And that takes time. It takes time in the field to build that trust, to withstand the challenges. So, so that's one thing um, yeah, is that I really hope that that, that can be learned. Um, the other thing, which I, and this, this is where the extractive industry hasn't got to yet. So here I hope that the renewable sector can kind of jump ahead of, of the, the extractive industry and hopefully take them with you. <laughs> and that is around... Um, I think being braver, actually. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, it's only recently come to light in the extractive sector that so much of what um, companies try to do, um, particularly around engagement and um, um, enterprise development or, or SED work, so much of that work is hindered by a lack of appreciation for the impact of unresolved trauma and um, and structural inequalities which play themselves out on a daily basis. So 
and and again, this has only actually become more to my awareness in in over the last year is where um you know I think about all these conversations we had around why why aren't these livelihood restoration projects working? And there were a thousand reasons why they weren't working. Um, but the, why, the point that we missed out on was that trying to bring opportunities like enterprise development into context where there is so much unresolved woundedness, um, we'd essentially set ourselves and the host communities up for failure because we weren't um, designing into our processes um, sensitivity to 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 that 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 context and that so we weren't planning with trauma in mind essentially was the mistake being made um and i'm very glad very grateful that conversations around that are now increasingly starting to surface but if the renewable sector can um have can include conversations around trauma and racism and structural inequality as part of how they um, part of how they work, part of how they navigate um, our current reality, they will, I think, have much deeper impact than the extractive industry has been able to have over the years because we've ignored those conversations and the need for them. Sure. And that's also relevant looking into the internal dynamics no, of a company as well as Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Sure. It's what's happening internally, um, absolutely, and equally. So it's it's inter intra company. No, what's happening within the company, absolutely, uh, and how those the trauma and racism plays out within the company and its impacts on people's ability to have influence and effect, and then equally, it's about the way in which company and company personnel carry out initiatives, whether it's engagement related or or. Um, you know, enterprise development related and how our ways of doing things often trigger trauma and therefore are unable to deliver on the benefits that we desperately, that the companies desperately want to see happen and equally which the host community definitely want to see happen. So I'm hoping for um, that if companies can become increasingly well-versed in, and I hate to reduce it to this, but there's a very, very strong business case for being trauma sensitive, you know, the amount of money that companies throw at, at, at various initiatives is enormous. Um, and, but that money is never going to see its full potential met if we're not sensitive to the emotional context within which, which you're working. So if that link can be made and the time set aside to deal with those systemic issues, um, if a deeper understanding of that can be kind of secured, I just think we'll see such a radical um, impact on in terms of benefit brought to communities and therefore also a quality of relationship between companies and communities. Yeah, Alison, we did bring two questions which we thought might be edgy, but in light of what you've shared now in terms of your hopes for the future, they actually um, are very, very much in line, I think. Um, but no, Tasnima's got a question and then I, I also have one to, to just end us off on. Yeah, perhaps a follow-up to your previous response about um, how companies need to become more trauma-sensitive in engaging with these the communities that they are engaging with. And this would obviously be an enormous undertaking in trying to find ways to avoid the unintended consequences or deepening that trauma when engaging with these communities. So 
what what are your views on how to decolonize social performance in Africa? Thanks, um, Disneem. I did I did give this question some thought, so I'm glad that you're asking it. Um, so I think um, with COVID nineteen, just to quickly take a sidestep, we've learned a lot about what it means to take global guidelines around responses to a disease and the impacts of a cut and paste approach. So I think we've we I think a lot of us are very sensitive to what it means to take global solutions and assume that they are um, appropriate um, in, in any context. So with that learning in mind, um, when I considered your question, the three responses came to mind. And the first one is, um, I think that one way in which we can decolonize social performance in Africa is for companies to start taking a very hard look at um, the relevance of their global policies, um, procedures, frameworks, whatever governance um, um, frameworks they have in mind, um, but to take a look at those and to get their African colleagues, their African colleagues, to almost to be invited to critically review those in the context of what works and doesn't work in Africa. So that's the first thing which I would do um, is to invite um, um, African colleagues um, to to consider the ways in which the so that the policies, procedures, um, and various frameworks are appropriate to an African context. And it's not to say that they will all be inappropriate, but I don't know if the question has even been asked, to be honest. Um, and so that's where I would start, first of all, because it's those um, document, pieces of document, documentation, that are the skeleton around which a company functions. So, so I would, it's almost like doing quite a deliberate gap analysis. So yes, um, this might have been developed in London, but are we really sure that it works in Africa? And have we even asked the question around whether it's appropriate in Africa, and even worse, um, whether in fact it might have negative consequences that we hadn't even thought of? So, so that would be the first, in terms of decolonizing um, social performance, that, that's one place where I'd start. Although, of course, that applies to you know, all aspects of a company's um, um, operation, not just social performance. Um, and then the second thing which strikes me is, um, and so, so I've got to be very careful of this as a, as a facilitator and trainer, um, is whose stories are we telling? Who, who is telling whose stories? That question came to my mind when, um, when I saw this question of yours. So when we create platforms for learning, are we being careful about whose stories are being told? So on the one hand, there's the, um, because even, I mean, myself, I consider myself an African, but I'm an African of colonial descent, um, which brings a certain lens that, um, you know, I'd like to think I'm aware of, but I certainly am not fully aware of. And so then what is my responsibility as a facilitator and as a trainer? Um, am I aware of where I'm dominating the stories and my interpretation of events and when I need, where I need to be? I mean, I have to constantly be careful about speaking on other people's behalf and making sure that um, I'm allowing stories to be told um, in a way that is representative, in a way that, um, yeah, I guess is representative, that allows for... Um, you know, local voices to be heard. So, so that's an, another thing which I, I know I have to be very careful about. And equally, when I run training courses, where am I pulling my material from? 
because at the moment, so much of the easy to access frameworks and training content does come from, you know, companies and from institutions that are not necessarily based here in Africa. So I very easily introduce a colonial bias or a, a northern hemisphere bias actually into my work. Um, and then lastly, um, I think another way of decolonizing social performance um, is to create a community of practice. And that's definitely something that um, Holland and I have been very involved in, is to creating communities of practice where we get to ask the difficult questions that go to the very heart of how our society functions which in part is around the past and in part is around unresolved trauma and ongoing structural inequality. So how do we manage, how do we help support um, social performance practitioners to manage current complexity while at the same time facilitate conversations which, which reckon with the past? So not to be afraid of um, these difficult conversations, um, that, that for me feels like almost in many ways the most important part of decolonizing social performance. And that's about um, giving people the tools and the skills and the forums to speak about our past in such a way that it frees us to act. Mm. Mm. Yeah, certainly three really powerful calls for actions, but also clues to action, which most of us can instantly start practicing, actually, um, and certainly reflect on. If you, if you were to have a opportunity to really freely speak about how to do this and what um, support would be um, appropriate to um, enhance, I guess, practitioners' availability and ability to sustain such reflective social practice with the integrity and authenticity and at this day and time, where practitioners often or do regularly sit at the interface between private and public interests. And as for the next decade or probably two or three or four at the core phase of the energy transition, what support would you call for? So, so the first thing that came to mind was around something which I've just mentioned, which is around creating these communities of support or communities of practice, where together we build our muscle for... Um, navigating the kind of complexity that I, that I referred to earlier. So, so to be more specific, though, um, and let, let me talk about training, for example. I would increasingly like to see training um, consider two, two distinct pieces. Not that they're related, but to, to consider um, both what is known as horizontal literacy, and I'm drawing here now on the work of the Presencing Institute. So your, your horizontal literacy is... The knowledge, it's your more, your more technical skills needed to, technical skills and content, technical knowledge needed to navigate, um, you know, the field that you're in, the complexities that you're facing. So, so that's, that's typically what training courses get right and, and where they tend to focus. But to um, become much more deliberate about building what, what, what I refer to or what the Presencing Institute refers to as vertical literacy. And vertical literacy is made up of two pieces. It speaks about um, giving people the tools to care for their own interior condition. So it's the internal journey. So what resilience do you need to be building in yourself to better understand who you are in the world? Um, to, I mean, there's this beautiful saying that says um, the quality of the intervention 
is directly relation, related to the interior condition of the intervener. And I really believe that to be true. So how do we um, give people the tools to take care of their own interior condition such that they can um, be more conscious, more deliberate, more awake in terms of the interventions that they're driving personally and within their company. But also vertical literacy speaks about um, the skills needed to be change agents, both within your own organization, within your own community, within the ecosystems that you, fi that you find yourself. So to answer your question, Holla, whether it's through the training offerings, the training programs that are offered, or whether it's through, and whether it's through um, the kind of communities of practice that, that we're working to create, I would like us to constantly be building both forms of literacy and that the two are seen as, 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 as related and as equally important. Um, because the vertical literacy, the technical knowledge is not enough to help us navigate the conversations that are really needed at this time. Um, so that, that's where my focus is shifting. Um, to create a healthy marriage between those two and for increasing buy-in for the importance of them so that we have a language that we can use to almost um, speak about what is so difficult to speak about sometimes and that we have the tools and the muscle and the yeah, ability to, to, yeah, to have these conversations towards healing, really, at both the personal and at the organizational level. So, yeah. So that, that's, well, that's what I would ask for. Um, yeah, thank you. You've, you've taken us right from the beginning, your own innocent uh, university degree choices <laughs> into the heart of the belly of the SIA processes and, um, yeah, the gradual and sometimes quite erratic maybe, but certainly progressive as it appears, maturing of the sector, which now needs to tackle a lot of things that have been left unaddressed from the past um, in order to, to be able to create a future that is more sustainable in all, in all regards, no? but with a focus on the social sustainability. Yeah. And I think that um, social performance practitioners have a, a very important and powerful role to play in that respect. But again, it's not their sole responsibility because that, we cannot lay that responsibility at the feet of your social performance practitioners. That's too heavy a weight to carry. But I think that we unavoidably will be torchbearers in our organizations. Um, but you don't ever want a situation where your social performance teams become where that is their sole responsibility. Um, and maybe that's where we as, as consultants, as academics, can play a role in helping to create a language that the whole organization can use, um, where communities and company personnel are equally able to use. Um, but it, but But, but it would be going backwards to make these conversations the sole responsibility of your social performance team. It has to be an all-of-company responsibility. It's a citizen responsibility, ultimately. Sure. And as active citizens, as inside a corporate, corporate machinery, it's very important change makers. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think we're getting there, to be honest. I mean, the conversations that I've been hearing happening in the last nine, ten months um, already are um, a leap ahead Of where we were. So I, I do feel optimistic, to be honest. There are a lot of world events that are supporting this shift. Um, it's just about finding a language that I think, um, well, it's finding a language that people can use to communicate with each other. And again, let's be careful about not colonizing that language. Um, and equally to be, to create safe spaces for these difficult conversations. 
you know, how, how do we do that? Um, how do we enable people to feel safe enough to 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 um, acknowledge their own shadow and their own blind spots or to be able to see them somehow? Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Alison. We really appreciate your time and what was a very rich conversation um, and deep dive into your career in social performance. Fantastic, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Outro. Alison's rich experience in social performance in the extractive sector offers insights into how the renewable energy sector can learn from and avoid the same mistakes. She emphasizes that community development is a profession that not everybody can do and social performance must be resourced well. Despite the growing industry, it is equally as important to develop practices that are appropriate for Africa. She refers to trauma and woundedness of host communities and the entire ecosystem we all exist in and how the renewable energy sector can weave these sensitivities into their operations. Her recommendations also include strongly supporting social performance practitioners through a community of practice to best navigate complexities and be effective. Mm -hmm.